Sensors are being attached to trains, light posts, and all kinds of factory equipment. Industrial machinery gives off high volumes of data that can be captured, stored, and processed with machine learning in order to improve workflows and ensure safety. Jason Delancey works at GE, which is building tools and systems to manage large IoT deployments. The full stack for enterprise IoT involves tools for managing thousands of sensors, databases for storing all the data that is coming off of these devices, authentication and authorization systems for enforcing security. There is a lot to do. In this episode, Jason surveys some of the technology that GE is building with Predix, its industrial IoT platform. He also talked about some of the large-scale IoT deployments that he has seen. Jason Delancey is a developer evangelist at GE. Jason, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Well, thank you. I've been a listener for a while, so it's uh, great to have another opportunity to chat with you. Absolutely. I think we last spoke at, oh, what was it, Soft, the Software Architecture Conference? Uh, yeah. yeah, and uh, we met at OSCON originally a little over a year ago now. Right. Time flies. Yep. Yeah, the conference circuit <laughs> sure is an interesting one. So today we're talking about IoT and what GE is doing. And GE has been around for a long time. What did GE do historically as a business? Well, I want to I want to understand that little bit of history, and then we'll get into the modern inventions that GE is working on. Certainly. So I am not a a GE historian by any stretch of the imagination, but. I joined GE just over, and specifically GE Digital, which is the, the software-focused unit of the larger enterprise that everyone knows. But yeah, the business at GE has evolved over time. You know, most people are probably familiar with sort of the, the, the origin of Thomas Edison and light bulb. But also, you know, I, I, I talked with one of our branding managers at one point. He's like, what's the first thing that comes to mind? And this was like a week after I had started. What's the first thing that comes to mind about GE? And I was like, honestly, 30 Rock and Alec Baldwin. Like that, you know, it was sort of that association, NBC oh, kind yeah. of thing. But yeah, so I mean, over time, you know, GE looks at what businesses make sense and evolve. So yeah, I mean, even the appliance business is no longer an area that GE is heavily involved with. But that is something that a lot of people would probably still associate with the brand, you know, dishwashers and refrigerators and microwaves. But now mm-hmm. the company is very much focused on industrial settings. And so, you know, sort of the little tagline I think that comes out in some of the stuff is the, the sort of things that move, heal, power the world. So healthcare is a big area for GE power. So you can think of industrial energy, wind turbines, oil and gas, you name it, transportation, so making large locomotives and so on, that there, there's a lot of very industrial flavor to some of the business units at this point. What motivated that shift in the business focus? Yeah, so I'm a little bit more on the software side of things, not so yeah. adept at the the business strategy side of things. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I, I'm sure in a boardroom somewhere, a lot of those decisions were made based on demand, right? And so, you know, historically, a lot of really smart people joined GE with an engineering background and engineering focus. So it's a very scientific community within in the company. So, I mean, I think, you know, recognizing some of those opportunities, some of those investment areas led to some of those shifts, whereas, you know, people change and their desires change. So too has the business. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense from my point of view, because you take all these industrial environments like 
power plants or manufacturing facilities. And certainly companies like Microsoft and Amazon and all the other infrastructure providers are breaking into this space and getting their feet wet, but they don't really have any sort of strong advantage over where GE is coming from because for everybody, this is sort of a new field to be breaking into where you're selling to these industrial providers and basically saying to them, look, in order to differentiate yourself, you need new hardware, you need new software, you need to revamp yourself as a technology company rather than a manufacturing company or a power company. And GE is a trusted brand name. So I imagine that the the sales process and even the genuine engineering expertise within GE is well aligned with this shift to becoming kind of an industrial Internet of Things company. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think, you know, if you get into sort of buzzwords, I mean, it's the digital industrial transformation. Mm-hmm. It's sort of what you'll, you'll see the, at some of the executive level type of discussions where, yeah, it is about, you know, sort of certain business outcomes of, you know, optimizing assets and operations. And for large companies that have, you know, a lot of these complex relationships between partners and, and things like that, there's definitely a lot of lessons learned I think, you know, a lot of the industrial IoT stuff in our, our platform, we kind of bring it out as, well, it was started from uh, let's eat our own dog food, let's use this to accomplish our own enterprise objectives, and then where it makes sense to have value for partners, for customers, and so on, individual developers, you know, make that, that kind of that switch. Mm-hmm. So these large enterprises that want internet of things in their power plant or in their manufacturing facility what are the requirements that they're looking for in an internet of things deployment yeah i mean i think there, there there's a number of things okay when we talk about availability of services and things like that certainly we've come accustomed to occasionally losing connectivity on our mobile phones or you know my you know, message on a social media platform didn't go through the first time I retry it. It's not really that big of a deal. When we look at safety critical type systems, obviously that level of failure is not really acceptable. So certainly having a robust hardened platform with some of those contingencies makes a lot of sense. So so we're definitely very much in this sort of control system space, uh, industrial control systems that handle a lot of that real time safety critical Type things, but as an industrial, you know, company or someone who wants to be in that space as you know a service provider of some sort, you have to sort of look at that environment. And now it, it becomes a problem of okay, well, there's a lot of data locked in these industrial settings. How do you pull that data out and then start making use of all of the new tools that we've developed over the last few years as an industry, in a software industry, in terms of machine learning and data analytics and taking a look at what that data was that was being gathered. And what we can learn from it. Because again, a lot of these assets will last, you know, we're talking about decades potentially. It's not, you know, sort of the every couple of years get a new phone type model, right? <laughs> so, it, you know, a lot of this equipment, you know, I walked into a, a nuclear facility and it was like walking into the 1960s. Like, I mean, it was pretty impressive oh. type of environment to see. And that's something that, you know, someone is in an industrial setting that may be what they're used to and trying to make use of these new technologies and doing that in a secure and safe way. So compliance, SLAs, those become very top of mind. 
okay, the example of a nuclear facility, this is kind of a, I mean, I want to discuss some examples with you because I think I've seen some of your talks and you do go through some really interesting examples of different contexts where Internet of Things stuff is starting to to be desired. But the nuclear facility question is interesting because these facilities that look like they're out of the 1960s, in some sense, that's horribly disconcerting because it's like, okay, this stuff is like mission critical. Why is it running on 1960s technology? But on the other hand, it's like, well, that's kind of comforting because it's maybe somewhat air-gapped from, like the the sensitive stuff is air-gapped from the internet in the sense that it's running on really old technology. So maybe getting there through an open network is impossible or difficult. So when you look at like a nuclear power plant as a case study in an organization that is trying to decide how connected they want to make their infrastructure, what are some conclusions or learnings you've drawn from those kinds of excursions? Yeah, no, I I should, you know, add a little, you know, it sounds better when I, I phrase it that way. But this, this particular one that I happened to go into was more of a research center as opposed to a power generation. It was not actually used to power the grid. So, you know, in certain cases, some of the equipment is certainly old, but when it's functioning, there's usually regular maintenance, right? Like when I think of my house, actually a little topical, you know, my air conditioner just went out, right? And it's because, you know, maybe I haven't maintained it to the same degree that I needed to, that's not the sort of thing that happens in a lot of these settings, that there are regular procedures and checks and things to make sure things function because, again, failure is not something that anybody wants to see. You know, if we do software development, right, the first rollout of whatever software you wrote probably sucks. Like, you're going to have to do it again and get it better and iterate, and that's just part of the process. That's why we do a lot of those testing. A lot of the, the equipment that's in place is, you know, it's functioning. It's doing well. It may not be running as optimally as it could, and that's where some of the opportunities are. Uh, and that's why we want to look at the data in a little bit more detail and say, like, hey, you know, the, the I guess the business pitch is, yeah, sure, if, if I can make this nuclear facility run 1% more productive, I mean, we're talking about an entire city or more that could be, you know, dependent on that energy. So that 1% can mean a lot at scale. And so that's, you know, the same for some of the other, you know, when you look at aviation or oil and gas offshore oil rigs. And you brought up the the notion of air gap, right? And, you know, in some ways it, it could be a feature, but a lot of our environments are out from the major centers, right? So connectivity, you know, even satellite connectivity or cellular, you know, Wi-Fi, these are not necessarily always available. And so mm-hmm. how do you handle that situation from an architecture perspective, right? Do you, you know, so caching data, having opportunities to batch process it, and some of that is all part of the the problem scope that we're looking at. Mm. So an environment like an industrial oil rig where there's maybe not connectivity like all around the entire oil rig, would they do something like where they have like an intranet where it's just wiring their internal infrastructure together and then maybe they have some sort of central gateway and the gateway is the thing that interfaces with the external world and maybe that gateway has some interface to a satellite or something like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's... I forget the exact number, I, I, and I could look it up, but, you know, in some cases, you might have an oil rig with, like, 30,000 sensors, right? So so if you think of your traditional public cloud, right, like, we're not 
uploading 30,000 sensors worth of data, producing data points every few you know, milliseconds up to the cloud. So we definitely look at these local gateways in terms of being able to do a lot of work there that makes sense for that environment. So you, you sort of have that industrial control system, but you also have those those gateways that have quite a bit of power, right? Just think like our, our mobile phones compared to supercomputers a while back, the gateway devices in terms of storage, compute power, and the ability to process and analyze data, you know, makes sense. You know, it's I was sort of reminded of, you know, a past experience where, you know, so I also used to work in computer animation and, you know, an early film, you know, and actually it was cheaper for them to put the film on a thumb drive or a hard disk and drive it from one city to the other to go to, to color correct. So, so when we're talking about large data sets at an oil facility, likewise, you might want to batch process that periodically and then move the data off for additional processing. I think companies still actually do that when they're doing a big movement of data to the cloud. They still oftentimes will put it all into something and then ship it in a truck to a data center. Yeah. Like that still happens today. Yeah. When we first started working with like film studios in India, yeah, it was you pay for someone to take an airline flight and take store. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was much easier to move the, the atoms than it was to move the bits over the wire. One example I heard you talk about in a presentation was, well, two examples. So one was locomotives with a bunch of sensors. So like a train is something that we want to have a bunch of sensors on, for example. And I think of a train as a pretty old device that we want to refurbish and you also give the example of smart cities. We want smart cities with sensors on the lamp posts, for example. And I just bring these up because I want to color our conversation a little bit more with some examples of Internet of Things and just give people a really broad understanding for how many use cases there are for connecting stuff. So maybe you could talk about those two use cases if you've been thinking about them in detail, just to give a, a few more examples of how these deployments actually work. Okay. And now, so I should add, you know, there are business units that focus on these things. So I haven't participated in these projects directly, but I could provide some analogies where I've gone off to try to build a demo or a proof of concept kind of thing. So sure. smart, smart Cities is a, a very interesting case. You know, so one of our business units is called Current. And so they're focused on what does it mean to build smart cities and rethink energy and information around the city. And so they're working with like the, the city of San Diego, for instance, and, and it was just a hackathon there recently where people had an opportunity to kind of experiment with some of the APIs. And so, you know, if you, you are used to things like Google Maps and some of the other great tools out there for looking at traffic and things like that, but, you know, they're not necessarily perfect. They won't tell you if there's debris on the road and things like that unless somebody reports it with ways. So a lot of these street lamps, for instance, in the city of San Diego are being outfitted with sensors, including cameras and sound. So you, there's been stories in the past about like the gunshot detector system and things like that. So... You know, it's taking the approach of what would a civic situation do with the data when given the opportunity to collect it in, in a manner, you know. And so some of the APIs that have been built are kind of these higher level abstractions, right? So it's not that you're getting raw video feeds, you're not getting raw audio feeds. 
you are getting data about how many lanes are on the road, whether there is a car moving at that particular time. And sometimes you can access that media. But in general, it's uh, how many pedestrians, what, what direction are they moving, what velocity. That's the type of responses you get back from queries using those types of APIs. And that's how the approach to smart city is like, okay, now that you have this data, you know, some, you know, higher level information about the, the scene has been created. Now, what do you do with it? You know, do you build an app for identifying the next available parking space? Do you do safety issues and things like that? And I think that's really the opportunity for people to kind of innovate and come up with new ideas once, you know, those sort of things have been created. The other example used was transportation, right? So one little project I've been working on is actually a little steam engine I bought, which is just a toy and it's something that's kind of to play with, right? But I did not manufacture that toy. You know, GE does manufacture jet engines, but if you take that toy and you start playing with it or moving it to different areas, its experience over its lifetime is going to differ for each instance, right? So being able to collect data about what's happening to that thing as it's moving and then aggregating it up at the fleet level starts generating some interesting insights, right? So some locomotives will go over hills, some will go in very rough terrain or be exposed to weather elements more than others. And so you might build something for the general case, but then having the specific details and data gathered from sensors about the environment and the conditions it was in, now you can start saying, well, for this subset, of engines of a larger fleet, uh, we might be able to tune certain parameters about how they operate to extend their lifetime or make them run more fuel efficiently or any number of things. So that's another example where well, 1% improvement in fuel efficiency of every locomotive, that's huge. That's a huge number. Yeah, absolutely. When we're talking about wiring up these previously non-internet terrains, like we're talking about locomotives or smart cities or power plants, there are some people that argue that these kinds of things like light bulbs and refrigerators and locomotives, they shouldn't have chips on them because of vulnerability risks or because of the potential for DDoS attacks. Now, I'm of the opinion that there is so much upside for example, the you know the stuff like you said with you know can we monitor our power consumption a little bit better in certain contexts like on a locomotive that's really really useful and that's so useful that we do want to solve the problems of security that occur in an Internet of Things surrounding. But what are the challenges to solving those security concerns? And are we still like not sophisticated enough that maybe we there are certain environments where we just don't even want to mess with putting chips in them well there's there's a couple of things in in some cases there's just regulated environments right that you can't that you know so like if i were to take a, a jet engine as an example you can't just go start duct taping sensors or chips on to that system. There's there's a whole process that goes through and, and sort of the curve of making those adjustments takes time. Uh, so that's one side of it. The other side is simply vigilance, right? So I'm not personally a you know a cybersecurity expert by any means. And one of the, the best ways I, I think I heard anyone describe it was that they kind of partitioned people who are in the software field into makers and breakers. <laughs> 
you know, some people really like to be able to take, you know, a bunch of different parts and assemble them and make something new out of them. I probably fall more into that camp. And then there's the other group who are a little bit more the breakers who really like to understand how a, something else works by taking it apart and, you know, moving parts and then putting them back and, and sort of deconstructing something. So, so, I mean, I think all of those, you know, I've, I've watched a couple seasons of Mr. Robot. So, I think like many people, you know, there are fears about what this could mean if there are vulnerabilities in the infrastructure and and certainly that is top of mind. And and there is this sort of friction you might feel even in in some of services how they're created and how you interact with them especially in an industrial setting and in that there are a lot of security restrictions in place about how you interact with things which when you come from a, a maker perspective oh, I'm just trying to make something or get something shipped out the door you know you you have to go through a lot of these challenges which are there for those security reasons right and so there's this usability or the developer experience side of things of oh it feels hard because there's all these security processes in place but on the other hand it's they're there for a reason to sort of gate you know, and control web traffic to make sure that, you know, vulnerabilities don't sneak in and as much as is feasible, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And part of that management of vulnerabilities is authorization and authentication and making sure that people who can access these sensors and these configuration panels on a giant centrifuge, we want them to be people who we actually want to be managing the giant centrifuge. And I know that this is something that GE is working on software-wise, both with predicts and the authentication and authorization services around that. So talk about some of the problems that GE is working on in the authentication and authorization space. Yeah, so there's a couple of different levels to look at that. So, so you had asked, uh, or we had talked a little bit about like the notion of gateways and, and devices that might be plugged in on premise to some of these industrial control systems for gathering data, where they might be reading in the sensors. Now, we do a lot of demos and things like that, where we might, you know, use a Raspberry Pi or Arduino, you know, some of the the easy to access devices that get you the sense of what the process looks like. But in terms of, you know, deployed production environments, a lot of times, yeah, we're talking about hardware that has been encryption on the device, certificate authorities for device authentication, talking to a known registry so that we have, you know, this classification of predicts ready devices that that we can kind of trust the identity of that device to a certain extent and to do that at scale with entire fleets of devices and managing the versions of software that are on them. But ultimately, like even when you're down at that edge level, the the request originates from some of those devices, right? It's not that I can go and just push whatever software exploit I come up with out to some of these devices. Uh, so that's that's part of the equation. And then on the other side, so when we do interact with a cloud environment, and I don't necessarily mean public cloud, right? It could be a local on-premise data center or that gateway device, or it could be up to the public cloud layer depending on use cases and how safety critical that data is and, and those types of things. But once you get up to that area, uh, we are platforms built on Cloud Foundry. So it utilizes UAA for authentication. And because it's an open source 
project. A lot of our security engineers are able to look at it, look for exploits, be able to submit patches back and help improve it the way, you know, a lot of, you know, security protocols are done. Can you take me inside an organization with a large IoT deployment and explain how they are managing the fleet of devices and sensors that they want to manage IoT-wise? Yeah. So, I mean, I, there are a number of solutions to that type of problem. We happen to sell a software as a service that is called Edge Manager. That's what a lot of our deployments will utilize. And it's it's kind of what you might expect, that there's a, you know, a web application you can log into. And when you do, you can see the devices that have registered with the system uh, so that you can get a sense of, okay, these are the devices I have access to. This is the version of software that's running on them. I can kind of get access to log information and things depending on what the device is and how it's been configured. But, you know, access and insights into what's going on in the device and when updates need to happen, you know, some of that can be orchestrated by pushing down, you know, new image containers, that kind of thing. Hmm. So how does a software deployment work in this large environment? So if I have all these, you know, sensors and things that are registering data or they're taking actions on data in an environment, if I want to push an update to them and make them change their functionality. Is there anything different about a deployment in that environment versus, you know, deploying my service to Amazon or, or to some other cloud provider? I mean, from a, from a workflow perspective, right? So if you think of, you know, a field engineer or operations engineer who's doing some of those deployments, uh, it might feel like a very similar process, but for some new innovative ways of approaching problems like that, you might actually see some differences. I know that there's been prototypes. I don't know if it's out in the field where, you know, using things like blockchain of you have a mobile device, a tablet, you go out to the field during a regular inspection period. And that's an opportunity to sort of validate the software package, you know, for data integrity and a deployment. So, so there's a little bit more rigor behind it in some cases, from you know the the technical software and the the security steps, so to that extent, it maybe changes the workflow a little bit. But in general, yeah, I mean we're we're updating software at the time and place of where it becomes necessary. Yeah, like I did a show about drones a while ago, and drone operating systems apparently have well, at least the ones from Airware, the the company I was talking to, have two separate operating systems basically like there's one that just does the high sensitivity stuff like you don't want to really mess with the in-flight stability system right like you're probably not going to want to push an update to that on a regular basis but you know the mappings of where a drone should fly to or what kind of data it should be collecting that stuff's fair game do you know if, you know, is that a typical thing you see where these sensors or large centrifuges or whatever is in the IoT deployment, do they have like two separate operating systems or do they have like some sort of high sensitivity system that's running underneath a a lower sensitivity system that's that's more, is more pliant and can be changed more easily? 
Yeah, I, I think I'm going to give a little bit of an unsatisfactory answer in that, in that it, <laughs> okay. it kind of depends, right? Yeah. You know, so a transportation environment versus a nuclear environment versus an oil and mm. gas environment may have very different requirements in terms of what hardware is deployed there. With some of the, the software solutions, you know, we are looking at the flexibility where it might be hardware that was produced by GE, but it might also be from some other company. And so because of that diversity of systems that are out there, you know, the, the solution might vary, right? So in some ways, uh, at least at this stage, it does seem to be very customized, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. Now, in these kinds of environments, there's so much data that's being created. Like if I'm trying to collect all of the data in a factory it's almost impossible. I mean, to collect everything that is actually happening, I can collect a lot, but what am I doing with that data? What kinds of databases am I putting it into? What kinds of caching hierarchies do I have? Give me a perspective for a typical database deployment at a large IoT firm. Yeah. So, you know, so the, the Predix platform takes this sort of ecosystem approach to providing different types of data storage. So there are a number of services that might fit different data patterns better than others. In some cases, you know, it may or may not be that surprising to just say, you know, you want to use Postgres, you know, a database as a service, but fundamentally Postgres or a no SQL Cassandra type solution. But, you know, the very most common thing is looking at things like time series data. And we also have asset data, which is kind of positioned as a, a graph database or a graph structure, but it also supports uh, extensible attributes similar to a NoSQL solution. So, so that type of storage allows you to understand what the equipment is, what the assets are, and how they relate to each other and what their components of each one is. So if you're operating at a fleet level versus an individual instance level versus the part of an instance level versus, you know, down to the, the screw, you could track every aspect of that if it makes sense to. And as you say, that's mm -hmm. going to generate a ton of data, right? So you're not going to be necessarily interested in gathering data about everything about the system and storing it all forevermore. So, you know, I mean, I think that offshore oil rig example, you know, the tons and tons of sensors, but, you know, in the end, you know, there's only maybe one or 2% of that data that's really going out and making you know, a significant difference in terms of how the behavior and operations will change and be optimized based on that data. So, so it can kind of vary. And some of that, you know, you might be storing at that gateway to device on premise. Some of it, you might be pushing to the public cloud and using certain analytics or machine learning algorithms to decide what you want to do at each level, what data to keep or what data to throw away. But ultimately, yeah, we're looking at data points that are gathered over time and then trying to make insights based on that data. And so, you know, if I go back to uh, this little steam engine demonstration I'm working on, you know, as I started, I was saying, here's a steam engine. I wanted to understand how it works. I don't, didn't build it, but it maybe could do some things based on my usage patterns to make it operate more efficiently. So I start identifying, well, what sensors make sense? And, you know, I start gathering data about vibration and noise and temperature of the boiler, how many air particles I'm putting out. 
But as I learned from that, then I might just go back and say, well, but how much electricity or fuel am I consuming and how much force am I actually generating on a piston? And I start trying to measure those types of things and sort of iterating over time and then finding that, well, that audio cue is actually not valuable. So maybe I don't need to store that data permanently and then then adjusting those parameters. So, I mean, it is definitely an evolving model, right? You start storing data. You start doing some data analysis, you know, and some of that's very interactive process that leads to, you know, we use this notion of a digital twin, right? And that's sort of your, okay, now I understand the physics of this machine. I've derived insights into the algorithms I need to understand how it works over time. And then I've codified those so that I can detect and do, you know, when those anomalies occur or what other operational characteristics might be important to respond to. I see. Yeah. So let's get into talking about predicts because that's what we've been talking about tangentially. This is the software as a service platform that GE is working on. What is predicts? Well, that's the the basic question. Yeah. So, and I, I say it's sort of a basic question because it is a very broad platform that is intended to solve a niche problem in industrial IoT by providing edge to cloud kind of connectivity and services that are really intended to build internet applications for industrial settings. And so, what that really means is, you know, GE wanted to optimize you know, certain aspects of its business. And in order to do that, needed to find ways of writing software to gather data that aggregate that data in a place where you can operate on it, uh, develop, you know, some of the, the, the tools and services that are necessary for storing that variety of data, and then building user interfaces on top to help uh, operators take, you know, action based on it. And And so doing some of those things internally, you know, it becomes this suite of tools and services that have general applicability to others and other people in industrial settings that they might be able to use it and potentially even contribute back to it in developing their own services. And for companies who are onboarding with Predicts, what's their process? What are they coming to GE and saying, I want X? Yeah, so there's there's a few approaches to it you know so today if you go to predicts.io you can actually get a free account to sort of kick the tires on some of the services and you know very quickly we'll understand that there's security requirements around how to even get an account to begin with uh, in terms of identity verification then once you have your account then you have to go through some additional learning around the different services so that's definitely in this sort of self-service type of model so if you're interested in participating in industrial iot that gives sort of these entrepreneurs or small companies an opportunity or an on-ramp to start evaluating the platform uh, using some of the services at a free level, which is probably not enough to go full on production, but it gives you a feel for how the services work and how to interact with them. You know, on one level, there's that that self-service model. On the other side of the spectrum, we have a pretty rich ecosystem of partners who have developed expertise using some of these services and building solutions. Uh, in some cases, like even if you go to Predicts.io, we try to highlight some of these case studies. You know, So like there's an example there for landing gear, uh, and it was a landing gear project that wasn't done at 
GE necessarily, but in collaboration with a partner who was able to you know, bring in a team of talented engineers who learned about Predicts and was able to implement a solution on top of the platform. And so you kind of see this range of small service integrators, independent service providers, and, and, and a range of solutions. Some customers might come directly to GE Digital and say, how do I engage with Predicts? And, and, or maybe they have a service of their own and they want to put it in the catalog for other industrial settings. And there's a number of examples of that as well, where we have not just services developed by GE Digital, but also other GE businesses as well as just partners. So if you go to, you know, like our catalog, you'll see, you know, Pitney Bowes and uh, Azuqua and, mm -hmm. and Decision and other companies that have said, you know, I, I have a product or a service that I think fits into this industrial setting. And then it goes through a process of working through our security teams and things like that before it gets into the catalog. But that's an opportunity for other people to participate in the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. We've talked about edge computing a few times previously on Software Engineering Daily, and you mentioned it a little bit earlier. What does that term edge computing mean to you, and how does that fit into the discussion of IoT? So edge computing, in the sense, is, you know, so you have edge devices, you know, and you might think of that as, you know, your, your mobile phone, but it could also be devices deployed out in the field, some of those uh, gateways would be an example of something that's running out on the edge. And I think we sort of classify a couple of different layers of edginess, so to speak. But those devices do have compute power enabled on them, right? It's It would be, you know, it's kind of your dumb terminal model of just passing everything to the cloud may not make sense when you actually have pretty powerful hardware deployed. And especially in like an industrial setting, there might actually be quite a bit of storage, quite a bit of compute resources there that's underutilized. And so edge computing, at least from our perspective, is looking at, well, what can we do there? What analytics can we leverage and make use of on-premise where we don't necessarily have to deal with high latency, pushing up the data. You know, so there are a number of advantages from real-time, quick response, those types of things. And so that's where you might find that it's not necessarily origin data making it all the way up to the public internet application, but some of the insights mm -hmm. derived from what was calculated at the edge. So what's the long-term vision for predicts? I want to understand how the different components of the predicts software stack fit together and where you see internet of things software stacks going yeah i mean i i have said it a couple of times but i mean i definitely see it as sort of this ecosystem where at least you know now i'm i'm kind of on the inside but it, i've seen a lot of these industries as things that i didn't quite understand, didn't have access to, or any insights into. And that's not to say that, you know, I can just go walk into a nuclear facility, but you know, that having a little bit of access to information and services that are used, it's allowing a little bit more participation so that developers at other companies or developers who maybe are wanting to try something new can find opportunities to build services or software that'll help some of those cases of industrial settings and making those small 1% improvements. And that's where it's, you know, in, in healthcare, in aviation, in, in 
power that we all are consumers of some of those things. So, so in, in the long term, I see that opportunity for a lot more people to get involved. The other theme that I think comes up in terms of the direction is also, you know, I kind of have I've made the point that the some of the software developers I work with, maybe they're wearing hard hats in the sense that it might be the turbo machinery engineer in Moscow. It might be the water plant supervisor in Ghana. It might be the material science engineer in Indiana, that they're domain specialists. And maybe they don't have a computer science background, but they want to be able to solve their everyday problems in their field and having tools that are easy enough for them to work on and build on and expand to meet their use cases. So I think, I think that long-term vision is how do you provide these services that are accessible for a much wider audience of developers and what it means to be a developer. There's a quote I reference a lot from you know, our former CEO, Jeffrey Emmold, who quoted about how many new employees come into GE and whether they start in finance or marketing or IT, they're going to learn to code. And that being able to have at least some basic software skills with the right tooling, there's lots of problems that people can solve. And those solutions will be super valuable. Mm. So the cloud tier of Predix sits on Cloud Foundry. Why did you build on Cloud Foundry? I think there's a couple of very compelling reasons why Cloud Foundry is valuable. You know, so one thing that we quickly identified was the need for GE and its customers and partners that we would work with to be able to run on multiple infrastructures potentially. So whether it was AWS or Microsoft Azure or OpenStack or an on-premise solution, having some common patterns, especially when you're talking about a large organization, needing to retrain everyone to work on different platforms would be a little bit more challenging. So having sort of this common model suddenly becomes super valuable to be able to have this consistency of how do I write an application and how do I push it to the cloud? So that's that's one reason right off the bat from uh, even just training and skill set development that being able to interact with cloud Foundry would be a transferable skill across multiple infrastructures. Uh, the other part of it was, again, kind of that, that hint at, you know, having uh, maybe software developers who aren't trained in distributed computing concepts and having them still have access. So being able to simply CF push an application and then scale it out without needing to go through a lot of the the procedures of, okay, I need to provision a server and then I have to make sure I get an image and install and configure all my applications, that there was a lot of value from a workflow perspective to get someone quickly to the point of delivering a valuable application. So that was another very compelling reason why Cloud Foundry is valuable. And then, I mean, I think the the value of the community and, and a lot of the the requirements around Cloud Foundry were very geared toward sort of this enterprise model of, hey, I have an organization or a department that needs a set of resources and being able to have quotas and be able to work in this ecosystem of partners and integrators who can deliver services on the platform and make use of our services and, and sort of the shared community and ecosystem. So that, that's a bunch of reasons that it certainly was compelling and has been the foundational tier of the platform. Hmm. What technologies 
have been built within the Predix platform. There's I know there's time series, there's analytics, there's some SQL technologies. Were these stuff built from scratch or were they taken from open source projects and built to integrate with the Predix platform? You know, it's, it's again, one of those unsatisfactory, it depends in that there's a range of options, right? So I kind of mentioned before Postgres and, and some of the open source tools that, you know, I mean, just from a development perspective, when I'm starting a project, you know, if, if I just have relational data, I need somewhere to store, it's just very accessible. And now it's available as a service on the platform. So some of the cases, it's just off the shelf open source projects where it just makes sense that it's a great solution to a problem. In other cases, well, yeah, I think you mentioned a few of the services where it was, well, there's not maybe a product out there, open source or commercial, that quite solves the problems that were being faced in this industrial IoT space. And so that's where some of these services like Asset and Time Series and Analytics Framework came to be was a way of managing certain types of data with certain types of functionality and then being able to tune them for some of these use cases. So it really is sort of a, a mixture of things. And, and likewise, in some cases, partners have come in because some customer or some GE business somewhere at some point said, I need a solution to geographic information systems. So what's available to me and, and trying to bring those solutions onto the platform. So it, it really does cross that spectrum of stuff that was either an available in the open source community, stuff custom built, uh, the Predix team, or things that came in through partners and, and other you know companies who wanted to build solutions for industrial IoT. That's great. Well, just to close off, I'm curious about how these large companies that are making purchasing decisions around Internet of Things technologies, how they are making those assessments. Because I know that they're looking around and there's a ton of providers who want to sell a company. So, like a company like John Deere or some giant pharmaceutical company that's got all this manufacturing and then Internet of Things, these unconnected things. How are they deciding who to purchase from and how to do integrations? like what hardware to buy, what software to buy. Can you give me some insight on on how they are making those conclusions? Certainly at the the hardware kind of sensor level, I'm not sure that I have a whole lot of insights into how that decision making is happening other than they identify, you know, maybe a, a price point or a scale, what protocols need to be supported or what storage, you know, I, some of those types of characteristics of a solution and then evaluating what is out there on the, you know, available to them, either from GE or otherwise. One of the, the, the strengths of our solution is kind of this edge to cloud, you know, being able to connect a lot of services to solve sort of the full spectrum of things. I think there's a lot of solutions out there that might solve the edge problem, or they might solve aspects of the cloud problem, or they might solve aspects of the security problem. And being able to you know, integrate all of those diverse solutions into one seamless system could be valuable. The other part of it is some of the, the learning and the, the data about it, right? It's not even just necessarily the software running 
on those devices or in the cloud, but the data and the insights that have been derived from data about industrial settings that becomes increasingly valuable as that data store grows, right? Yeah. Well, Jason, it's been really interesting talking to you about the different facets of industrial Internet of Things and what GE is doing. I want to thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Well, thank you so much for, for having me. Like I said, fan of the show, so it's good to have a chance to talk about this. Absolutely.